mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I'm going to preach this morning on the first reading from Isaiah, Isaiah 61. And I entitled this, for obvious reasons, Through Rose-Colored Glasses. <laughs> because Isaiah 61 presents a very poetic, inspiring vision of the coming restoration and the coming of the kingdom of God. The poetry is easy. When you see it all compressed in a paragraph, as we do in our bulletin, you don't realize that it is written in the poetic form, the form of Hebrew poetry with couplets repeating an idea and sometimes triplets. And if you see it laid out that way in your Bible and read it aloud, you can appreciate what a wonderful writer, wonderful inspired writer Isaiah was. But of course to us the main thing is the message of restoration, of righteousness, and of peace. Now, prophecy can be a little confusing at times because generally speaking, there's more than one level in a prophetic passage. And it can be a little hard to tell when it switches from one level to the next. So the point of this Isaiah reading overall is that God is faithful to his promises. He is faithful to his covenant. Now, who is speaking when it says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me? At the first level... It's Isaiah. It's the prophet. He is anointed by God to speak. And the first obvious application of what he says is the restoration of Judea after the Babylonian captivity. So the people have been released, have been freed to go back to Judea, uh, to rebuild the city, to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the walls. And that is what we see in the first few verses of the reading. It's the return from exile. Good news, we are free. But it very quickly goes beyond a physical restoration of some buildings. It very quickly goes to a spiritual level. And so already in verse 4, we see the prophet speaking about oaks of righteousness. His people are not just to go back and rebuild the city. They are to be rebuilt spiritually. They are to be oaks of righteousness. Now we have, or we had, a number of oaks on our, around our home. And one thing about oaks is they don't bend. Oaks of righteousness. Are we oaks of righteousness before the Lord? That we do not bend to anything which comes along contrary to the word of God. We are the planting of the Lord, and he says in later verses, we will grow. If we're not there yet, we will grow to be oaks of righteousness. So it's very much about a spiritual restoration as well. Now verses 5 to 7 are missing from the reading we had today, and whenever I see the verses, I get suspicious. <laughs> so I look, and there's nothing suspicious about these. So verses 5 to 7 describe... Again, much beyond the rebuilding of Jerusalem, the messianic vision of all of the nations coming to know the Lord, all the nations coming to Jerusalem, offering their riches to the people in Jerusalem. Not 
just to make the Jews rich. Not at all. It's because the Jewish people are called to be the priests of God for the nations. So just as in the time of Israel, the tribe of Levi was the priestly tribe, and they were supported by offerings from the other tribes so they could fulfill their duties in the temple, so the Jewish nation is to be a priest to the whole world. They will come, bring their offerings, and bring their support, and the priest will offer them to Almighty God. So it is about the glory of God being recognized throughout the whole world because of the work that he has done in restoring his people Israel. In verses 8 to 9, we see it's clearly God who is speaking. It's not the prophet who's going to pronounce judgment and restore justice. It is God speaking his judgment on evil and on restoration of the covenant. In verse 10 and 11, I think we see the prophet speaking again and in a sense incorporating the response to this good news of himself and all of the people. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. Not just him as an individual, obviously, but the whole people are to be clothed with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom is adorned, as a bride with her jewels. So again, we've gone from the physical to the spiritual, using the imagery of bridegroom and bride, which is characteristic of so much of the prophecy and description of the kingdom of God, the coming wedding feast of God with his people. God brings it about for God's glory, and it's all a very rosy picture. Well, we know the restoration of Jerusalem didn't last. So it lasted for a couple of hundred years, and then Alexander the Great and his generals came along and did not destroy the temple, but they certainly desecrated it. And then it was restored under Herod, and then the Romans came and they did destroy the temple. So the first level of meaning of the prophecy was only fulfilled temporarily. The book of Isaiah, however, continued to have provide great hope and great meaning for the people of Israel. It was one of the key books of the, the Essenes, the Qumran community where the writings were discovered at Qumran back in the 50s, I believe. And the book of Isaiah was found in its entirety in Hebrew. And if nothing else, it provided evidence of how faithful the scriptures have been passed on to us because it agrees with the official Hebrew text from the 11th century, word for word, except for a couple of misspellings or corruptions of individual words. The faith of the word of God has been faithfully passed down and remained important uh, in the hope for the coming Messiah preserved by the believing Jews. When we visited the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem in November, one of the most moving things that I heard or saw was there were videos occasionally spaced throughout the museum of Holocaust survivors telling their story. And one of them was a man describing how they realized that without a miracle, they were dead. But they said, he said, even if God does not work a miracle and save us, we will believe in him. We will hope in him. So that messianic hope 
still persists through all the difficulties that occurred. The influence of Isaiah obviously was very great with the early Christian community as well. Uh, Jesus himself started it. In fact, there are so many quotes from Isaiah throughout the Gospels that it's sometimes called the fifth gospel. But when Jesus went to Nazareth, as we read in Luke chapter 4, he specifically used this reading that we have this morning. It says in Luke chapter 4, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and he went to the synagogue, as his custom was, on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. So when a guest of some importance, which Jesus was beginning to acquire an importance around the, in Galilee, he was offered the opportunity to read and to speak. He stood up to read, and there was given to him the book of the prophet Isaiah. He opened the book, and found the place, they didn't open it to chapter 61, Jesus went and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, which is what teachers did at that time. That's why we talk about chairs in universities. He sat down and began to teach. And the, the eyes of the people all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Notice this is very deliberate. And he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So we can read this whole passage of Isaiah as a messianic prophecy starting with Jesus and continuing from there. It starts with him. We can even read verses 8, which are the words of God pronouncing judgment and righteousness as words of Jesus because all judgment, all authority has been given to him. And verse 10 and 11, which speaks of the priesthood, Jesus is priest, prophet, and king as well. It continues with Jesus' church. So just as the prophecy described the Jewish people as being priests to the world, Peter calls us, the followers of Christ, the body of Christ, a royal priesthood. In 1 Peter chapter 2, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, that you may declare the wonderful deeds of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So Isaiah 61 is a messianic prophecy starting with the coming of Jesus, continuing with his mission through the church to the ends of the earth. Again, very rose-colored glasses, a very rosy picture. Well, I don't know about you, but I've had a hard time keeping my rose-colored glasses on in the past year. It's been pretty tough. We have all the worldwide things. We have the rise of ISIS. We have the actions of Russia. We have the economic turmoil. We have the political turmoil. Right here in our own community, we've had Ferguson. One misstep, and all hell breaks loose. That's all it takes. And it's been difficult to look with rose-colored glasses. 
On the anniversary of the beginning of World War I, a few months ago, I read an interesting column by Peggy Noonan in the, in the Wall Street Journal. Talked about at the time when World War I broke out, everything was going well. Economy was going well, pretty much all around the world. And yet, one incident happened and the whole world blew up. It seems like we have this ability to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory over and over. And she said that um, when the different empires of the time started proclaiming war against each other, crowds of people in the capital cities actually cheered. Why? It made no sense. Eight million people ended up dying, and the war to end all wars simply planted the seeds for the next war. It was a time when even Christians and Muslims aligned, sort of. The Holy Roman Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, allied with the Ottoman Empire. They were both starting to fall apart. They were both working to preserve their empires. So I guess the desire to preserve your empire overrides everything else. But it simply all blew up. So what is the basis for our hope that we can look at the world through rose-colored glasses. Hebrews 2, chapter 2, verse 8 tells us. It says, now in subjecting all things to them, he's referring to the angels who are God's agents, God left nothing outside of their control. So he is telling us that God has control over everything. He hasn't left anything out. But as it is, we do not yet see everything in subjection to them. Really, that's not hard. But we do see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And that's the key. Jesus' victory over death. What can our enemies do to us beyond killing us? And yet Jesus has the victory over death. And through Jesus, we see not just him risen personally, but we see beginnings of his kingdom. We see little sprouts of God's plan. We see glimmers. We see new life in ourselves, in others. We see physical restoration, spiritual restoration, and even social on a limited scale. There's no question that the spread of the gospel in the ancient world and up to our own time has produced very good changes for our society, things that we almost take for granted now. And so, Jesus tells us in the gospels, we are to be patient, even in the midst of suffering. I saw an interview with a, an evangelical pastor on Fox, one of the Fox Network shows, about ISIS. So this is when we were first learning what ISIS was doing to Christian communities in Iraq and Syria. And the interviewer, I forget who it was, asked the pastor what he thought about it. And he said, well, I'm not surprised. Our leader taught us to expect these things. Well, that kind of made the interviewer a bit speechless for a moment. That was not what he wanted to talk about. 
he wanted and eventually got him into, yes, this is terrible and we need to do something about it. But basically he said, we're not surprised. This is what Jesus said would happen. But we are to believe anyway. Not only just believe for a final restoration, but even now to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Work for justice and peace and reconciliation when we can, while we hunger and thirst for the reign of God to arrive in its fullness. And the only way is through forgiveness. There is no way to untangle the messes that we see. There is no way to untangle just what happened in Ferguson and to get people to agree. There's no way to untangle all of the turmoil that has happened. It has to come about through a sense of reconciliation and forgiveness. And so that, I think, is why, somewhat in the Isaiah reading, but especially in the psalm we recited afterwards, it talks about those who went out sowing the seed, weeping and suffering, as so often happens when we plant the seed of God's word. There will come a time when rejoicing we will collect the harvest. When Jesus was talking about these things and about the things that would happen before the end of the world, he said, when you see all this happening, all this bad stuff, what are you to do? Lift up your head. Your salvation draws near. Dust off your rose-colored glasses and put them back on. Your salvation is drawing near. Maybe we could even say the worse it gets, the closer he is. I'm not sure I could really defend that, but it just might be. So we rejoice today because we're halfway there, at least more or less. We're halfway to Messiah's coming that we celebrate at Christmas, and we're on the way to his final glorious return. Hallelujah. 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 Amen.